So as we come to today, Palm Sunday begins what we call Holy Week. And when you look at the Gospels, it almost seems disproportionate how much time is given to one week out of three and a half years of ministry and 33 years in the life of Jesus. I mean, so much of the Gospels is given to what happens in this one week, particularly what happens on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But it's not disproportionate at all when you understand that this is the reason that Jesus came. His death on the cross is the very reason that Jesus was born into this world. It is the great work that He came to do. Not telling parables, not feeding thousands, not walking on water, not healing the sick, not even raising the dead. No, Jesus primarily came to suffer and die on a Roman cross, rejected by men, bearing in His body our sin and shame as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice to purchase our pardon that we might be declared righteous before a holy God and live forever with Him. That's why He came. And so far we've looked at five of the the seven final statements that come from the cross. Not Jesus' last words but His final words before His death on the cross. And we've looked so far at a word of forgiveness, a word for the future, a word on family, a word from one forsaken, and a word of frailty. Today we're going to finish with the last two words or statements that Jesus spoke before He died. And I want to sum these up with just one point, or six points. And that is that these are words at the finish. Words at the finish. The final two things Jesus spoke on Calvary were, It is finished, and Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Those are both words of finality. Words of completion. Words spoken as Jesus crossed the finish line. Makes me think of Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of Hebrews uses Jesus as our example as He instructs us. He says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The authors of Hebrews is describing this moment. Jesus has endured the cross for six grueling hours, despising its shame and instead counting it as joy. And how could He do that? Because it was His mission. This was the race Jesus came to run. This was the work He came to accomplish. And by dying this death, in this way, at this time, He was obeying the Father's will and glorifying the Father's name and acting out of His sacrificial love for you and me. And Jesus knew that the shame of the cross was not the end. He knew that victory lay across that finish line when He would sit down at the right hand of His Father in heaven making intercession for all who would trust and believe in Him. So before we unpack these last two statements here at the finish line, I want to do something a little different. I went through and, and, uh, and I was... Afterward, I saw that Ben had made this outline, and I encourage you to pick that up up there at the, at the Faith at Home Center. I wish I had seen that before. So I went through the Gospels and kind of paired together, put, put together a chronology, a harmonization of the events of the crucifixion. So I'm going to, and, and they're listed there at the end of your notes. I kind of put the list of what passages I'm going to be reading from. I just want to read through. I'm just going to read through, starting with uh, where the soldiers are mocking Jesus at Pilate's house all the way through his death. 
Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, placed a staff in his right hand, and they knelt before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head with it. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. There they crucified him. And two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top, So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since you're undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling for Elijah. The rest said, Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, He said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to His mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. 
When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, this man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The sixth thing that Jesus spoke from the cross found in John 19 was, It is finished. It was a cry of triumph. A cry of triumph. It was finished. Now you may say, what was finished? Jesus' suffering? His ministry? God's plan of salvation? The work of atonement? Maybe all of the above? One thing is clear, it was not a cry of defeat. It was an anthem of victory. Just like his previous cry of thirst, in the Greek it's one word. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. It means it is finished. It is fulfilled. It is completed. It is accomplished. It is done. Once again, Jesus' experience of his words on the cross are a fulfillment of of Scripture. We've looked at Psalm 22 many times over the past few sermons and how it reflects and foretells what Jesus experienced and even what He said on the cross. Last week I ended the sermon with a little look ahead to the hope-filled ending of Psalm 22 as we think about Easter coming. But I want you to notice the last word of this prophetic psalm. In Psalm twenty-two thirty-one, it says, They will proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it. Just like to Tetelestai, that is one word in the Hebrew. He has done it. And that's what Jesus is saying from the cross. In that cry of victory and triumph, He's saying, I've done it. It is done. It is finished. There are some dimensions about this triumphant crowd I want us to look at, and I was inspired by by the uh, expositor's Bible commentary on this passage. It says that the expression, it is finished, may be interpreted in various ways as a cry of relief because suffering is ended, or as a shout of victory because the purpose of God has triumphed in His death. The author makes it the final report of Jesus to the Father who will now exalt Him to glory. So I I want to think about each of these and then one more that I've added to that. The first, it was a sigh of relief. A sigh of relief. We cannot begin to fathom the cost for God the Son to become incarnate in human flesh. And Jesus wasn't incarnate just for 33 years. When Jesus came down into Mary's womb and grew and was born in Bethlehem, He would be in flesh for all of eternity. Jesus is forever the incarnate Son of God. Yes, in a resurrected, glorified body as we will also someday enjoy, but He is forever Jesus Christ in the flesh. And imagine, even for that brief moment, that brief time He was on earth, imagine the frustration, the disappointment, His rejection, and of course His suffering and death. Consider the weight of sin. The absorption of our guilt and shame. The wounds He suffered for us. So yes, I can imagine in in another reflection of His humanity, Jesus sighing with relief that this part is finally over. He has drank 
the cup and it is now finally passed from before Him. He has run the race and now He's crossing that finish line. It was a sigh of relief. But more than that, it was a shout of victory. A shout of victory. Again, this was no whimpering cry of defeat. This was no admission of failure. Now, to those watching eyes there, it seemed that way. To the Romans and the Jews, they had defeated this man that was causing them so much problems. His followers felt like it was a defeat. Their hopes and their dreams seemed crushed. This king of glory that they welcomed in a few days earlier as he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna, praise to the king of Israel, this Messiah that they hoped would overthrow Rome and restore the kingdom to Israel, he now was rejected by Israel and dying on a Roman cross. What? Some of the crowd shouted, He saved others. Can He not save Himself? If this is God's chosen one, why won't He save Him? But they didn't understand. They didn't understand that this was the plan all along. Jesus came to do so much more than bring physical healing only. He came to do so much more than deliver Israel from the political oppression of Rome or to establish a temporal kingdom. No, Jesus came to bring spiritual healing. He came to deliver all people from the oppression of sin. He came to establish an eternal heavenly kingdom that will never end. He didn't come just to destroy the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. He came to tear apart the curtain that separated a holy God from sinful people. The apparent failure of the cross was actually a success. The seeming defeat was a resounding victory. It was a sigh of relief that this was over, but it was a shout of victory. It has been accomplished. The work has been done. Third, It was a prayer to the Father. Jesus is telling His Father that He's accomplished the task. He's finished the mission. He's been obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was telling His Father that He had done what He said He was going to do just even the night before in His prayer. In John 17, 1-4, Jesus prays that night in the garden. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted Him authority over all people that He might give eternal life to all those you have given Him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth. By what? By finishing the work you gave me to do. And finish the work He did. It is finished. It's a prayer to the Father, but it was also a proclamation to the world to you and me. A victory shout of good news to everyone. As Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. That's what Jesus is doing, announcing to heaven and earth His finished saving work. He's proclaiming salvation and peace that bring good tidings to us that sin has been atoned for. Redemption has been purchased. Pardon is now possible. God in the highest is glorified and peace is now provided through the gracious gift of God's goodwill toward mankind. That's what he's saying when he says, it is 
finished. To telestai. One final thing I want to point out about this word, to telestai's, that in the Greek, the grammar of the word is perfect tense. You know what that means, right? <laughs> it's perfect tense. I'll tell you what that means. In the Greek, it means not only is it finished, but it always will be finished. It is as complete as complete can be. It means that it is finished and there's nothing to add to it. There's nothing more to be done ever to secure salvation and make atonement. As Hebrews 7 tells us, it says there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because, now I want you to listen, listen for these words that hint to this completion. Completely complete. Forever complete. It is done. There's nothing more to be done. Listen to these words. He says, but because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins. What? Once for all when he offered himself. It is completely complete. It is finished and always will be. Amen? The law and the prophets are fulfilled in Him. The old covenant has given way to a new and better covenant. Atonement is completed once and for all for those who trust in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. As we sang earlier, lifted up was He to die. It was finished. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It was a cry of triumph. And his final words, found in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, was a cry of trusting rest. The final recorded word of Jesus on the cross was a precious prayer of trust. He said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Now, every one of the gospel writers, whether they record these words or not, every one of them say, that he shouted out, he cried out with a loud voice on the cross just before he died. Now, was that shout, was that loud cry, the it is finished? Or the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? Was it that he said those things back to back all at once with that final shout? Who knows? But the fact that he cried out with a loud voice before he died tells us that Jesus didn't die from physical weariness. He didn't die because he was worn out. He didn't die because the life was drained from him. He died of his own volition. He willingly, intentionally, at that moment, chose to give up his life. To entrust his breath, his spirit, into the Father's hands. Foretelling and explaining his death in John 10, 17, 18, Jesus said, Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. And he says, he makes it clear, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. And Jesus proves here at the end that all of this was according to the eternal plan of God. He voluntarily gave up his life in obedience to the Father and out of love for you and me.
Once again. Once again, in, in his speaking from the cross, he's quoting Scripture. This one from Psalm 31, 5, where David says, Into your hand I entrust my spirit. And Psalm 31 is a prayer about trusting in God as our refuge. That He is the one who rescues us. Let's go back to verse 1 of Psalm 31. David says, Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me for your name's sake. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me. You are my refuge. And that's why David said, Into you, into your hand, I entrust my life. That's what Jesus quotes here. Think about it. Jesus died with the Word of God on His lips. The last thing He said before He died. And once more, He died according to the Scriptures. And in so doing, Jesus calls God once again His Father. Remember the first word from the cross. When He asks for the Father to forgive His executioners, He says, Father, forgive them. And His first word from the cross. And His last word from the cross, Father, I entrust my spirit to you. That tells us that from beginning to end on the cross, his relationship with God was unbroken. That feeling of separation that he had earlier has passed. I mean, think about it. He went from, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? To, Father, I trust you with my life. It tells us that this is an unbroken relationship of trust based on this eternal relationship between Father and and son. It's an expression of faith. It's an expression of complete trust in his father. One author wrote, the storm of God's wrath beat fiercely upon that devoted head. But now the storm has passed and the sunshine has come again. It was a prayer of trust. But not just any trust, it was a prayer of trusting rest. Makes me think of Genesis chapter 2. Remember, after God Spent six days creating the world. What did he do? He rested. Genesis 2, 1 and 2 says, On the seventh day, God had completed. He had finished the work he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day, declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Well, Jesus finished his work of redemption, making possible the new creation. And when he did... He rested. He spends three days in that tomb. His spirit goes to God the Father and He rested. Jesus knew this. Even in the darkest, most painful, most isolating moments on the cross, Jesus knew. As I said last week, He experienced the judgment and separation that is like hell that you and I deserved. He experienced that. But listen, and and there's misunderstandings about this. I don't believe for a minute that Jesus literally went to hell after he died on the cross. I don't think he did. You know why? Because Satan never could put his hand on Jesus. In fact, Jesus tells us here what? It's into the Father's hand he entrusts his spirit. The Father. He went from the pain of the cross to the peace and protection of the Father in an instant. He experienced hell on that cross, yes. 
But he always knew that he was safe in the loving hands of his heavenly Father. Death didn't get the last word on that cross. Life gets the last word. And guess what? The same is true for us. When we die in Christ, when we belong to Him, we can trust that our spirit is safe with the Father. Satan can't touch us. The devil can't put his hand on us. And we go from this life into the presence of the Father immediately, just as Jesus did. One pastor said, Death becomes nothing more than a barrier, like a temple curtain to be torn into to allow immediate and permanent access to the Father. That's what Jesus did for us. Amen? He shouted a cry of victory, of triumph. He had finished the work He came to do, and then He went to rest in the presence of the Father, trusting in Him. Paul talks about what Jesus did on the cross in Colossians 2 this way. He says that when we were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, Jesus made us alive with Him and forgave us all our trespasses. How did He do that? Paul says He erased the certificate of debt with His obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. By the cross. We are dead in our sins. You were born into this world dead in your sins. Cut off from fellowship with God, the giver of life. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be made alive. That's what Jesus does when He saves you. He doesn't turn a bad person into a good person. He turns a dead person into a living person. A lost person into a found person. An enemy of God into a child of the King. That's what Jesus does. Our sins are an act of rebellion against our Heavenly Father. Treason against our Holy God and Creator. And that sin must be punished. But Jesus willingly took that punishment on Himself on the cross. He paid the debt that you and I owe for our sins. And for that reason, our sins can be forgiven. The Old Testament law is the written code, Paul says, that stands against us. A constant reminder that we're sinful, that we fall short, that Jesus is the only person who was ever able to perfectly keep the law. Jesus was and is perfect. And He was able to do what you and I could never do. He kept the Word of God. He was sinless in every way. And in Christ, guess what? We can be declared righteous. We can be acquitted as lawbreakers. Jesus took the charges against us and nailed them to the cross. He took our guilt and shame with Him to the grave. And when He rose from the grave, guess what? He left all that behind. Your sin and mine is dead in Christ. He destroyed death. He destroyed sin and all the worldly powers of evil, all the demonic forces that crush, invade, enslave, and destroy. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering the last enemy to be defeated, which is death. And what do you do with someone who won't stay dead? I mean, the Jewish religious leaders and Romans thought they'd gotten rid of Jesus. Satan and his demons were dancing and rejoicing. And three days later, he comes back to life. 
A person who doesn't stay dead, how do you defeat them? They thought they were the victors. But Jesus ended up making a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by the cross they meant to destroy Him with. He won through defeat. And because of His death, we can live. All of this was accomplished through the cross and the empty tomb. All of this was necessary for our salvation. And He has done it. It is finished. Only one thing remains. Only one thing is demanded from us. And that is a response. We must respond to this good news. Like any gift that is freely given, it has to be received, right? We have to take it and receive it. Being saved and forgiven of your sins, receiving eternal life, being made right with God isn't about anything that you can do. It's about everything that Jesus Christ has already done for us. You can't earn God's love. We'll never deserve forgiveness or eternal life. It is a gift of His grace that all we can do is receive. How do you do that? Well, first, you have to acknowledge that you need it. Acknowledge you need this gift. Confess that you are a sinner, that you have rebelled against God, that you deserve eternal punishment because of your infinite offenses against a holy God. Admit your need for a Savior. Confess that. Own it. Be honest about it. Secondly, believe that Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God who died on the cross as the perfect atonement for our sins and rose from the dead victorious. Believe that His work on the cross is enough to save you from your sins. And then finally, turn away from a life of sin and selfishness and self-reliance and put your trust in what Jesus did for you. That's how you do it. I need this gift. I believe in this gift. I turn away from everything else in my life to receive this gift. And if you do that in faith, trusting in what Christ has done for you, the Bible says you will be saved. Your sins, past, present, and future forgiven. The debt you owe, paid for. Your account with God is settled forever. It's completely finished. There's nothing more to be done. If you've never done that, if you've never experienced that rebirth where Jesus has made you a new creation, not because of anything you have done, but because you simply accepted the gift of what Jesus has done. If you've never done that, I invite you to come this morning and do it today. Let this week truly be a holy week for you because you step from death to life and you become a child of God. If you need that this morning, if you have a question about that this morning, I'm going to be standing right here. Maybe God has spoken to you in some other way. Maybe He's calling you or your family to unite with this church and worship and serve Him here. Maybe you've already made that decision but you've never made it public and been baptized and you need to do that. Maybe God is speaking to you in some other way, convicting you of the burden of needing to share the gospel, this good news I've talked about this morning with the people in your life. Whatever it is, just as Jesus was obedient to death on the cross, let's be obedient to what God is calling us to do today and in the days to come. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are so grateful and humbled by this good news of Your grace. As we contemplate, Lord, what Jesus Christ experienced and what He did on Calvary's cross for us. 
Christmas, it is humbling. It is mind-blowing that you love us that much. But it's so true. And Father, I pray You would help each of us to realize that, to embrace that truth, to rest with trust in Your loving arms, to accept freely what You have given for us. If there's anyone that needs to do that for the first time in their life today, I pray they would. Whatever You're speaking to our hearts, God, may we be obedient and faithful to You, the One who is ever faithful to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.